with it. Um, and if you don't, that's perfectly fine too, back there if you want them. Um, but we're going to be dealing with the tale of two seeds there under the first section, uh, sub, sub point number C there. We're going to be covering that through the rest of this portion tonight is going to be the main focus. I had said sort of at the end of last week, as we wrapped up, if we can get and you can understand Genesis 3.15, then you can understand the rest of the Bible. This is sort of the seed of which everything else is, is flowing out of. And we're going to look at that. Um, certainly doesn't, does not mean, by the way, do not take that to mean that chapters 1 and 2 in the first portion of chapter 3 don't matter as much. It's not what we're talking about here. What this means, though, is that this is going to be where the gospel is first preached, where the promise of Redeemer comes, and this tale of two seeds that we're going to see traced throughout all of Scripture and even to our own day and age today. And hopefully this will make the Bible come a little bit more alive and make us to read the Bible in a way that we see that everything from Genesis to Revelation has a point and a purpose, and it is to bring us to Christ, and that even the little things such as genealogies matter. Now let me stop here before we get going. How many of you struggle with reading genealogies? Right? No one's got a life verse that, and so-and-so begat so-and-so. It's not your life verse, right? You don't have it tattooed somewhere? No? Well, of course not. Why? Because we look at that and we just go, well, that's just telling us the family tree. That's just telling us who had babies and what their weird names were that we can't halfway pronounce. But guess what? It is important. What we're going to see in the book of Genesis as we move forward, and we'll address this as we come to it, and really throughout the rest of the Bible, is that we're going to have several genealogies, several little sections that are going to be covering uh, some of what we're going to look at tonight as the unrighteous seed or the seed of rebellion, even what would be called the seed of the serpent. And then we're going to have that of the righteous seed, the seed of faith, and how God is continuously progressing all the way through to get to who? There you go, Jesus. Someone get a sticker, right? Good job. It's Jesus. Why? Because what is this book about? What? Okay, there you go. All right. You guys were <laughs> hesitating there. It wasn't a trick question. It was the same answer, right? It's Jesus. That's right. All right, and let's look at this tonight. Verse number 14. And the Lord God said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle. And though every beast of the field upon thy belly shalt thou go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Unto the woman he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception and sorrow thou shalt bring forth children and thy desire shall be to thy husband and he shall rule over thee. And unto Adam he said, Because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife and hast eaten of the tree of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for thy sake and sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth to thee and thou shalt eat the herb of the field. and the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread till thou return unto the ground, for out of it wast thou taken, for dust thou art, and unto dust shalt thou return. Here in verses 14 and 19, as we've talked about, it's the aftermath of the fall, part two, if you will. This is where God begins to now not just go, hey, where are you? And what do you mean you're naked? How do you know you're naked? But now he gets to the place where now he's pronouncing judgment First, as we've been dealing with in verses 14 and 15, specifically against the serpent. Then verse um, 16, dealing with the woman. And then verses 17 and 19 with uh, the man. And we're going to see those individually later on. But tonight we're going to be ending off here with the judgment against the serpent, right? Against Satan. What we find is this, that 
attached to it and really at the center of it that Satan's ultimate judgment against him is not even just that it's bad news for him, but that it's good news for us, right? Look at verse 15. I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. This is of great importance because this is going to send forth the rest of the Bible. Let's look at this first of all. So one commentator puts it, Salehammer, he says, The woman's seed is presented as one who lies in the distant future. Yet it is the same seed who is to crush the head of the snake. The crushing blow against the serpent will not be against the seed of the snake, but against the snake itself. The seed of the woman will crush the snake's head. The snake is thus the enemy of the woman's seed. In the end, it is a snake, not a seed, uh, who, uh, who head the seed of the woman must crush. Here we see, the beginning of what all of Scripture is going to be, and that is Christ is the victor. Christ has conquered. Even in this very moment, in Genesis 3.15, even before we get there, Jesus is still victorious. He has never not been victorious. We often look at the cross as this great and terrible loss. Even in the cross, there is victory. right? Even in what seems, in the eyes of the devil, in the eyes of Satan, in the eyes of those who are unrighteous, where the cross would be foolishness, right? The preaching of the cross is foolishness to them that perish. Satan's a perishing foe. He's a defeated foe. So it makes no sense, but yet Christ has always been the conqueror. He has always been the victor. And what we see in this is that while God is pronouncing judgment against Satan, in the same breath, his pronouncement of judgment against him, that he is ultimately going to be defeated, and even to some degree already is defeated, if you will, the same way that you and I are already seated in heavenly places. I'm here, but I'm also there, right? It's as if I'm already there. Now, the, the point and the idea of this is he shows that though he's being judged, his judgment is our gain. His judgment is the gospel now being preached to, to man here, to be able to hear that there is going to come one who will crush his head, who will conquer. Now, as the commentator pointed out here, he presents one who lies in the distant future. And I believe this is important for us to know and understand as well. If we look over in Genesis chapter 4, and we'll get to this when we get there, I I firmly believe that when Eve has her boys, she's got Cain, she's got Abel, that she firmly believes that this could be the one to crush the head of the serpent. We have no reason to believe that she's thinking, well, this is going to happen, I don't know, thousands of years from now. She's been told this is going to happen. She's looking to see in her own day. The same way as we find throughout all the rest of the Bible that we'll look at in just a few moments as we trace the seed of faith that Abraham, when he's promised the land, seed, and blessing, is expecting the seed the same time he gets everything else. Instead, what he's got to do? He's got to wait. He doesn't just wait for a year or two. He waits for decades. How about Isaac saying, Jacob saying, how about Israel? Over and over. The church, a continual waiting period, a continual time, but yet always expectant. And I believe that God's people should always be expecting deliverance, but yet deliverance ultimately comes when the Lord brings it in His time and His way. And the way in which God brought about the deliverance of His people was in the least expected way. Israel knew about a prophesied Messiah. Israel knew about a coming Savior. And yet when he was there, they said, well, no, that can't be him because that's not what he's going to look like. It can't be. We want him to look like this, so therefore he's got to be like this. And, well, this is Jesus coming in on a donkey who's humble and lowly and meek and mild. And 
He's, he's coming as, as this lamb, not this head and shoulders guy who's going to kick out Rome and all this stuff. God uses these unexpected things. Now, I want to look here um, in just a moment. And ter- take your Bible and hold your place there. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Look at verse number 13. It says, And not as Moses, which put a veil over his face, that the children of Israel could not steadfastly look to the end of which is abolished, but their minds were blinded, for until this day remaineth the same veil untaken away in the reading of the Old Testament, which veil is done away in Christ. But even unto this day when Moses is read, the veil is upon their heart. Nevertheless, when it shall tur- when it shall turn to the Lord, the veil shall be taken away. Now the Lord is that Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Now the reason why we bring this is because this is a key to understanding Genesis three fifteen. It shows us that there's going to be this long line ultimately that's going to bring about that coming Messiah who will crush the head of the serpent, who will be the ultimate victor. But what do we see all throughout the Old Testament? We see Christ preached. What do we see in the New Testament? We see Christ preached. And what do we find that this Bible points to Jesus, but yet when the Jews saw Jesus, they saw Him with a veil. When the Jews read the Bible or hear the preaching today, what do they still have? It is this veil. It is these darkened eyes. It is these eyes that are shut, that cannot and will not see and refuse to see Christ because their hearts are still darkened their hearts still desire a messiah that looks like what they want what they desire now this is important because you and i when we look at genesis 3 we don't just see god saying snake bad don't do that you're going to get your head crushed and then moving on woman you did this here's your problem man you did this here's your problem now y'all get out of the garden go and get we don't find that what we find is by God's grace establishing the whole long line and theme of the whole Bible. And it's what uh, it is called the, the Proto-Evangelium. This comes from a combo of words. Proto meaning first, Evangelium meaning the idea of, uh, of the Gospel, is where the same word comes from for the good news and the proclamation of such. So for you and I, when we look at Genesis 3.15, what do we find? We find the Gospel. What do we find in Exodus? We find the Gospel. What do we find as we go through book by book? We find the gospel. I want to uh, encourage you, if you're, even if you're not a big reader, it's an easy read. Uh, it's called Bloodline um, by Skip Heisig. Um, good read, pretty simple, but what he does is he covers basically book by book of the Bible, the bloodline of showing how this is where Christ has been promised and this is where Christ is seen in every book of the Bible because the Bible points to this and this is sort of the establishing figure of showing that the gospel is of central importance. And it shows as well that the moment that man sins, what's the answer? The gospel. What's going to be the answer throughout the rest of their life? The gospel. What's the answer for you to be saved? The gospel. What's the answer for while you're saved? The gospel. What is needed the most? The gospel. What could keep Adam and Eve moving forward or their descendants moving forward? The fact that there is coming a Redeemer. They believe this long before we even get to the Ten Commandments, long before we get to the Exodus, long before we get to the law giving, long before we even get to Mount Sinai, long before we get to the prophets, uh, you know, long before we get there, the people of God, who God has revealed Himself to, are anticipating a coming Redeemer. 
Now that Redeemer has come. But now you and I in the church age, we also still yet, just like them, anticipate the coming Redeemer, except this will be His second coming, where He will restore all things and fully and finally put, uh, put all enemies uh, under His footstool and put uh, His last enemy to be destroyed, being death forever and forever, where even ultimately the serpent himself one day will be cast into a lake of fire. So we find that the very beginning, God knows exactly what is going to be taking place throughout His Bible, throughout uh, human history to lead us to Christ, to lead us not just to His first coming where He would uh, offer the redemption price for man, but as well then pointing to the fact that He's going to come again to fully and finally crush the head of the serpent and that there will be no more rebellious seed, there will be no more unrighteousness, there will be no more faithlessness, but there will be only those who are in the Lamb's book of life, only those who have trusted in Christ, that same very Messiah. The gospel is what is needed. And I love this because what we see that God does, though He would have been just to zap them on out of there and to start afresh and anew, is that He does what? In the process of bringing judgment, He as well brings grace. His punishment comes. His justice comes. But comes with His grace. You have the two hand in hand. And so God is doing this for our benefit, for their benefit, and ultimately to lead us because what do we find at the cross? We find God's justice and wrath, but yet we find God's grace and mercy. We don't have more of this and less of that or more of that and less of this, but we find them perfectly united and together, all of which poured out uh, the, the justice and wrath poured out upon the Son so that mercy and grace could be poured out upon us sinful man. Now, with the preaching of the first gospel here, uh, Charles Ryrie writes about this. This is the first gospel declared in the Bible. The good news that the woman's seed, Christ, would ultimately defeat Satan and his seed. You can look, he's got a reference, Galatians 4, 4 and 5. It is from this point on that the stream divides. Satan and his family, or seed, Oppose God and his family. God himself put the enmity, which means hostility, even the idea of war, uh, between them. And God will climax the war when Satan is cast into hell. Revelation chapter 20, verse 10. Review the parable of the tares in, in Matthew 13. And note that Satan has children just as God does. In Genesis 4, Cain kills Abel. And 1 John 3:12 informs us that Cain was of that evil one, a child of the devil. The Old Testament is the record of the two seeds in conflict. The New Testament is the record of the birth of Christ and His victory over Satan through the cross. What we're going to see here, that's the end of his quote there, is this begins the long winding road to get us to Christ, and it begins the long raging battle between those who are of the devil and those who are of God. And there is nothing in between that. You are either born again, born of God, or you are still yet of your father the devil. There is no in-between. There is no, no halfway house. There's no sort of Venn diagram where you can be halfway in and halfway out, or you know, I'm partly in the world and I'm partly in Christ. You are either in one or you are in the other. No man will serve both masters or two masters. He will serve one or the other. And the idea is this, that we find that those who are going to be born in Adam are born, and that's all of us, by the way, before Christ. We are of Adam as well. 
It is this idea that we are born with our sinful nature, sinful condition, and a sin-cursed body, and a sin-cursed world separate from God. But then to be born again is to be born of the second and the greater Adam, the perfect Adam, Jesus Christ, the one who is obedient unto death, even the death of the cross, to redeem us, to reconcile us unto God by the blood of His cross. So, the story of man, all throughout, from here on, and what we're going to see as we go through, because if we're honest with ourselves, most of the time when we think about Genesis, we think about in the beginning God created, then bad stuff happens, and then worse stuff happens, and God says, well, I'm going to send a flood, and then we've got the colorful, cute little pictures of an ark, and they're floating in the water, and then it's over, and they come out, and there's a rainbow, and things are great, and then we forget, oh, things get worse, and there's a tower, and it's really bad, we forget how bad that actually was, and then... Then, Abraham. And then we're like, oh, okay, whew, it's good, right? Remember, everything is pointing us to get us to the lineage of Christ. Everything is weaving its way, but all throughout what we find is this conflict between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. The descendants of those who rebelled against God and the descendants of those who then would put their trust in God. Those who would live and walk by faith. We see the lost versus the redeemed. Unbelief versus faith. Flesh versus the Spirit. And this is going to be the story all throughout. And it's the same, same sort of story that we see in our own world today. It's no real different today. The only difference is that now instead of looking for the Messiah to come the first time, He's already come and now we're looking back and going, this is definite, this is true, and you either believe this or you do not know Him. And you are not a part of the family of God. And what we have is this continued conflict, one against the other it seems, where the seed of faith is trying to convert these because their souls are at stake for eternity. And these are just trying to conquer this one and to suppress and to silence. The same way in which Satan is going to do that all throughout the Old Testament, to do all that he can to silence those who are of faith, to silence the prophets, to silence the message of God, to distract the people of God, to divide the people of God. The same way that in which he's going to do the same thing to try to get Jesus from going to the cross. The same thing that he has been doing in the church age to keep the church divided and distracted and discouraged all along the way to think that we're the only ones or that you know, we're all alone or that things are going to get worse and worse and worse. And they are, but we get so defeated by it that we forget that Christ is the victor, that we are more than conquerors. We forget the very first preaching of the gospel comes the moment that, that sin enters the world and we somehow think that though we sin, that the gospel is still not there for us. Or we somehow think that because we sin, that grace is not yet still there. Now as we look at this, we want to see the, the seed of the serpent here. Right? He talks about this. That there's now this war between thee and the woman, right? The Satan and the woman. And between thy seed her seed. Now let me ask you. Physically, Satan did not have kids, did he? No. But spiritually speaking, the idea is that they are his descendants. Every descendant of Adam now becomes a descendant of Satan because they are born in natural rebellion against God. They are born naturally separated from God. They are born naturally doing that which is evil and wicked. And by the way, we have to understand this as well. When we're talking about false religions in the world, we're talking about those who believe in a salvation outside of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, 
And that, by the way, is the vast majority of the world. We're not just talking about other religions. We're talking about satanic worship. Right? We're not, we're not talking about just someone else having their own sincere belief. We're talking about not just pagan thoughts or ideas, but we're talking about ultimately those who serve Satan. Islam does not just go back to their own ideas of what Muhammad conjured up. It comes back to Satan. What, what, does, what did the Greeks and the Romans do? It wasn't their own real gods that they really thought were really there. It ultimately goes back to satanic worship. What about when we find this even at the Tower of Babel? We find this even here, listening to the voice of the wicked one instead of the voice of God. And to disobey the voice of God is to listen to the voice of the deceiver, the father of lies, which is Satan himself. So those who have followed Satan in sinful rebellion against God's kingdom and have not by faith received justification by faith in Christ, they are the seed of the serpent. They are faithless, or at least they are full of faith, but it's faith in the wrong things or faith in the wrong one, right? Because even an atheist, I would say, is, has more faith than what most Christians do. His faith is just that there's nothing there and that there's nothing going to happen to him when he dies. He knows he's going to die, but his faith says nothing's going to happen to him when he gets there, right? That it just ends. Just as much faith. As a matter of fact, there's a, a fairly popular book that came out not too long ago, um, sort of an apologetic book for the Christian faith called I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. And I love the title because it's certainly true. There is a lot of faith that they've got there, but it's faith in the wrong thing. Ultimately, they're putting faith in what Satan has said. What has Satan said? Did God really say? Right? You surely won't die. There's not a hell. Sin's not really sin. You can go your own way. It's lies. <coughs> Look here for a little bit of further proof here. Those who are of the seed of the serpent, uh, John chapter 8, verse 43, Jesus is preaching here, and there's Pharisees all around and all these uh, Jewish leaders, and he says, <clears throat> Why do you not understand my speech? Even because you cannot hear my word. Ye are of your father the devil. They continue to say, Well, our father Abraham, father Moses, and all these great patriarchs and, and people of God. He says, and the lust of your father ye will do. He was a murderer from the beginning and abode not in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own. For he is a liar and the father of it. And because I tell you the truth, ye believe me not. Which of you can, uh, can, uh, convinceth me of sin? And if I say the truth, why do ye not believe me? He that is of God heareth God's words. Ye therefore hear them not because ye are not of God. We're going to find, as we move on from Genesis 3.15, when we get to Cain and Abel, when we get to Noah in the world, when we get to Abraham versus everybody else that's around him, when we get to Isaac and Ishmael and Jacob and Esau, when we get all the way down through the line, what are we going to find? Those that either listened by faith, and faith is not just a saying, yeah, I believe it, but it is a total response, submission, and then an active faith of following the Lord and all that He has said. And so when, Abra when God says, Abraham, come, Abraham goes, okay, yes. 
And he starts, he doesn't just say, that sounds like a plan, and then sit still. He says, yes, and he goes where the Lord leads him. Faith is active. And then we see Jesus tells them. He says, you're of your father, the devil. And then we see, of course, Ephesians 2, 2, wherein in time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the children of disobedience. It is dealing with the, uh, the, the God of this world who is the prince and power of the air that, that is currently uh, wreaking havoc uh, throughout all the world, and that is the devil. He has been doing so since the garden, but there will come a day where he will not be able to do so again. That's the beauty of Genesis 3.15. That though Satan seems to be winning all of these battles throughout, not just the Bible, but human history, God ultimately has the victory. That there is ultimately a victor in Christ. And that all those who put their trust in Him are now a part of His seed, are part of the, the faithful seed, are now a part of the seed of the woman, if you will, by uh, regenerated birth, that we have been born again now into the family of God, translated by adoption from the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of this world, the kingdom of Satan, to now the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, let's look at the seed of the woman here. I got a really long block quote, and the reason why is because he helps to sum up what, what we're going to be kind of looking at and what, what all of this kind of boils down to. And it shows how all throughout the rest of the Bible, what you can do is as you read the Old Testament, even in those genealogies, you know what you can find? There's the Gospel. There is hope that this is pointing to someone far greater. This is pointing to Jesus. But this is also showing that there is this great divide between those who do not know the Lord and to those who do know Him. And it is a divide that cannot be reached across and hold hands and pretend like you're a part of the same. You're not. A goat and a sheep is not the same. Right? Wheat and a tear is not the same. Right? It's different. Why? Because this is unfaithful, unrighteous, and this is faithful and declared righteous. Now, here's what this says. And I'm going to kind of take some pauses as we go through here. It says, if we look at the natural development of the human race, Eve bore three sons. And by the way, these are the ones that are mentioned specifically in Scripture. And as we go through, we're going to see the reason why. The reason why is because Cain and Abel, first mentioned, and what we're going to do when we get to Genesis 4 is we're going to see that the one kills the other. But the one that gets killed was the one that offered by faith. And then all hope seems lost after that. But then the third son that is mentioned... Seth, it says in verse 26 of chapter 4, and to Seth to him also there was born a son, and he called his name Enos. Then began men to call upon the name of the Lord. What do we find again? We find faith, true faith, saving faith, real, genuine faith. Now that's important, all right? Now, he says, but only one of them, Seth, was really the seed by whom the human family was preserved through the flood and perpetuated in Noah. Now, if you follow the genealogy, which we'll do, we're going to get to Noah through Seth. Not through Cain, not through Abel, but through Seth. Now, then notice this. So again, of the three sons of Noah, Shem, the blessed of Jehovah from whom Abraham descended, was the only one in whose seed all nations were to be blessed, and that not through Ishmael, but through Isaac alone. And notice that. We've got 
Adam and Eve, they've got three named sons, Cain and Abel. They're there at one time. Cain kills Abel. Cain is lost as can be, and Abel is now dead, so he can't continue any lineage. So then what happens? Seth comes, and people call upon the name of the Lord. There's faith again. It will be through Seth then that Noah comes. And remember, when Noah got on the ark, because God said, come on in, right? You and your family. Who else got on besides him and his family? Nobody. Why? Because there was no faith. Well, the animals, yeah. <laughs> okay, you go. Yeah. All right. <laughs> go sit. I'm, all right. <laughs> I'm, that's, that's a good one. All right, yeah. All right, you go. The animals. There's always one in the crowd. There's always one. Right? What other human beings besides his, fa- his family get on the ark? None, right? Was it show us? Was there found any faith other than Noah? We don't see it. If there was faith in the rest of the world, wouldn't somebody else besides him, his wife, his three boys and their wives and the animals get on the ark? Surely somebody would have if they had faith, but they did not. But then out of his three sons, you would like to think that those three, having been preserved through that flood, would have been, yeah, man, God's good. This is great. But what do we find? We find it would be through one that the seed of faith would be continued on to grow and to lead onward to Abraham and then to Isaac. But was Isaac the firstborn son? No, it's a trick question. We'll see it later on, by the way. You keep coming on Wednesday nights. We will eventually get there. I don't know when, but we will get there. And when we get there, what we're going to find is this. Ishmael comes first. Who should be getting stuff? You'd think, naturally, the oldest son, but no. It was Isaac whom God chose. It was Isaac whom Abraham loved. And we'll see that account later on. And then Isaac has Jacob and Esau. And they're twins. Who comes out first? Esau. Who gets the blessing? Jacob. Who had faith in their life? Jacob. Even though he had all these multitudes of issues, it would be through Jacob that this would continue on. Ultimately, to where it would be through Jacob's time that it would be through their faith that they end up in Egypt to be saved from the famine, to then be in the right place where then they would go through captivity just as God had promised Abraham, which we'll get to that. God had said this is going to happen. And guess what? It happened four years later. There it is. And then to bring them out in what is called the Exodus to point to Christ. And over and over and over again, what we find is the lineage leading to Jesus is this beautiful bloodline that shows that a physical lineage is leading to Jesus, the coming Messiah, but as well the spiritual lineage is by faith in the coming Messiah. And it is by faith that man lives and walks. The Bible tells us, Romans 1.17, the just shall live by faith. We're saved by faith. And it is faith that keeps us trucking on in the Lord, that we keep walking by faith. We do not walk by sight. We walk by faith. Trust and dependence upon God's Word, His faithfulness and His promises. And what do His words, faithfulness and promises tell us? That I will put enmity between thee and the woman, thy seed and her seed, and it shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise His heel. The Gospel. Let's pick up back with the author here. He says, 
through these constantly repeated acts of divine selection, which were not arbitrary exclusions, but were rendered necessary by differences in the spiritual condition of the individuals concerned, right? Faith versus not faith, right? It comes down to something so simple, yet so eternal and necessary. He says, the seed to which the victory over Satan was promised was spiritually or ethically determined and ceased to be coextensive with physical descent. The spiritual seed culminated in Christ in whom the Adamitic family, the, the uh, Adam's family and, and lineage, um, henceforward to be renewed by Christ as the second Adam. Right? It's what 1 Corinthians talks about. A better Adam. And restored... Uh, by Him to its original exaltation and likeness to God. In this sense, Christ is the seed of the woman who tramples Satan under His feet. Not uh, as individual, but as the head both of the posterity of the woman, which kept the promise and maintained the conflict with the old serpent before His advent, and also of all those who are gathered out of all nations are united to Him by faith and formed into one body, of which He is the head. Romans 16.20 He is the head of the body. It is Christ who is the head of the body of the church. Colossians tells us. On the other hand, all who have not regarded and preserved the promise have fallen into the power of the old serpent and are to be regarded as the seed of the serpent whose head will be trodden underfoot. It's the whole Bible. Genesis 3.15 The whole Bible. That there is this spiritual war raging now. But there is, in the same exact time that this has taken place, already a victory, and it is found in the one who will crush the head of the serpent. And this is why I believe that every, every time that they would read this passage of Scripture, hearts, when they read it, would have been jumping for joy that there is a coming Redeemer. It certainly would make sense that when there's such a Messiah fervor during the time of, of Jesus' uh, entrance into the physical world here, in the incarnation, that more than likely there's plenty of other ladies who are going, I wonder if I'm going to be the mom of the, the Savior, of the Messiah. Every mama thinks that their little baby is the best baby in the whole wide world, don't they? Right, mamas, do do you? Yes, right. Of course, some of y'all are looking. You got multiple kids, and now your kids are fighting which one's best, right, and all that stuff. They're right? <laughs> already pointing fingers. <laughs> We're not going to get into that, right? But think about this: everyone wants your kid. You want your kid to be special, and your kid is special, especially you, right? But you want your kid to do something great, be wonderful, and all this stuff. You want them to grow up no matter. Is there anything that would matter more than to be the Messiah? I mean, that's a pretty, pretty big deal, isn't it? Everyone would have loved that sort of idea, but guess what? There would be only one Messiah, and He would come in the right place, the right time, to the right people, for the purpose that was given long before ago, even before Genesis 3.15, even before sin comes into the world that it would be that the purpose for Christ would be to come and to redeem a people unto God. So then, throughout all of human history, we now have those that are the seed of the serpent, those who are still in Adam, 
or those who are now a part of the lineage of faith or that of those who are in Christ. The second Adam, the better Adam, the greater Adam, the perfectly obedient one who has conquered and obeyed where Adam failed in the garden. Christ has succeeded and not just for himself, but like Adam represented the, the all of humanity in his failure, Christ has made a way for all of humanity in his success at the cross and in his uh, wonderful resurrection to seal it. So, Christ leads to those who are now in him by faith. And this is a pattern, not just in Genesis, in establishing God's chosen people, Israel, later on, but as well as all those saved that are a part of the church today. We find that the war is raging, but yet the war is already won in Christ. And by the way, just because you are in Christ, just because you are saved, just because you know this same Messiah, does not mean that Satan says, well, shoot, just missed that one. I guess I can't fight him no more. No, rather that means he's going to keep on fighting. Though he may not have your soul, he wants to steal your joy. He wants to keep you from living in the Spirit. He wants to keep you from walking by faith. He wants you to look by sight. He wants you to listen to Him. He wants you to believe lies. He wants you to get sidetracked. He might not have you for eternity, but He's got you right here and right now to battle and to attack. And that's what He's going to continue to do. It's much like a team who's... They know, right? It's fourth quarter. They know they're going to lose, right? They've been blown out by 20 touchdowns, right? I'm not talking about the Redskins either, okay? It's never quite that bad, right? It sounds a little bit like it. I've had this story before. But what happens? That losing team, what do they still do? They still fight. Now, they don't get close, but they still fight. And I want you to know, Satan's never going to get close to winning the final victory. Never. He's already lost. He's already defeated. He's already a loser. But yet, at the same time, he is wanting to continue to fight because that is what he has done from the garden and it's what he will do until the moment God says, that's enough, throws him away. And by the way, when we think about this, we, we view Satan as if he is almost some sort of equal with Jesus and God. No, no, no. Remember, he, God here, who's he talking to? Created being Satan? Created being Eve? Created being Adam? All which created. Now, two which created in the image of God, and the other one was there in the presence of God before he falls. So he's talking to people that at one point in time used to have sweet fellowship with him. He's talking to people who are dependent upon Him to live and have any sort of power or authority. Remember, it's not Satan who said, oh, well, I'm just going to take all this, this is mine, and have some sort of authority over God. Rather, in His fall, He's only allowed to go but so far. He's only allowed to do but so much. And right now, this authority is to be the prince and power of the air until God says, no more. And this is what Genesis 3.15 promises us that there is coming a no more. It's done. And in Christ it is done. Now notice God's goodness and grace here. God's judgment is still yet gracious. 
that His grace preaches the good news as His justice must preach judgment. And both take place here in this verse. That's what the Gospel is. Because you don't have the Gospel being good news without there also being the bad news. You can proclaim the Gospel, but you can proclaim an incomplete Gospel if you do not include that there is sin and that there is need of repentance. The true Gospel is that there is sin and there is judgment, but then yes, there is grace and it is only found in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's what the whole Gospel is. The Gospel is incomplete without this bad news of judgment because why would Christ have to die if there is no judgment? If there's no judgment, then Christ died in vain. And what this verse shows us is the perfect picture and display of God's judgment and His grace. Now, three things and we're done. God's response to sin. We see in this passage up to this point the gracious confrontation. Some of the most beautiful conversation that God has with a man in all of the Bible, especially in the Old Testament when it takes place time after time, is, Adam, where are you? Not, I know that Adam has sinned. And before I talk to Adam, I'm just going to send him into a lake of fire forever. God would have been just. And Adam would have been deserving. But instead, God graciously confronts His sinful creatures who are now fallen, who are now separated from Him, who are now naked before Him. And He offers space and time by His grace of repentance. Sadly, they do not accept. But then even he has this gracious condemnation. That even in his judgment, there is yet sprinkled grace and mercy all in it. That though judgment is going to be pronounced for every single one, the Satan, the serpent, Eve, that we'll see next week in verse 16, and then Adam in 17-19, to then we find even greater, you want more grace than what we've already seen in the passage, Then He's going to make Adam and Eve coats of skins and clothe them. Grace. And lastly, a gracious confirmation that this promise is now given in His judgment, the promise is given of the good news of the Gospel, that there is victory in Jesus. That there is not just judgment, but there is grace. And for you and I tonight, we have got to make sure, and I know this, right? I'm no no dummy here, not all the way. I'm preaching the choir tonight, right? How many of y'all are saved tonight, right? Right, right? And, and, And if you're not, you at least knew to raise your hand. You think about this. Talking to the choir tonight, you know what it means to be saved. But when we look at this, I want you to know, this is not just some kid's story. This is not just some little fairy tale. This is not a Disney movie. This is the account of God Himself who has spoken the created world and has formed and fashioned man. And though that same man loved and could enjoy fellowship with God and and it was perfect in a great place, that one fell 
In so doing, though, God, instead of crushing it all and saying never again, because by the way, God was never dependent upon creation. Creation was dependent upon God. What does He do? He instead shows grace. So what this should do for you and I as believers tonight, who have read Genesis how many times, even though we've skipped over parts of chapter 5 and some other chapters to talk about the names, right? Let's be honest. What should this do for us? It should remind us of God's grace when I was in sin before Christ, when I sin now that I'm in Christ, and that one day by God's grace, I will have full and final victory to be glorified and to see that same God face to face. That's the Gospel. That's this verse. That's the whole Bible. Alright, so Genesis study's done, right? We got it. <laughs> We're done. On to the next. I hope you got something out of tonight and I hope it helps us as we read and study God's Word, especially as we're moving through the book of Genesis. Let's pray. God, we come to you this night. Thank you for for the opportunity to gather to study your word. I'm grateful for uh, everyone's uh, patience as we study and as we take a little bit extra time tonight, Lord, just to look at some of these things. Lord, your grace is, is truly amazing. And Lord, may we never forget it and we never take it for granted and we never abuse it, Lord. But God, may we look at passages like this in a, in a newer and in more of a fresh light to see that this is much more than just watching the fall of man, but this is as well, Lord, you proclaiming how that fallen man can be redeemed and only through the blood of Jesus. God, I pray that as well as we read this passage and we understand more that we would be grateful and thankful that we are now uh, in You and that we have been adopted into Your family, that we can come to You not just as our Lord God, but Lord, You are our Heavenly Father. You are a friend to us. You are faithful and true and good and and You ask us to come to You and and You are a refuge and a rock and a mighty fortress to to those of us who, who know You, Lord. So God, help us to be reminded of those things, but as well as we study the rest of the Bible to watch it come to life as we see Christ in the Scriptures. Lord, I pray that You would help us tonight as we go from this place to have our hearts rejoicing in Your goodness and faithfulness to us. And Lord, that we might tell somebody the good news of what You have done for us. Lord, we love You. We thank You for this time. In Jesus' name, Amen. Y'all have a blessed